Welcome to the Pair Program from Hatchpad, the podcast that gives you a front row seat to candid conversations with tech leaders from the startup world. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, the creator of Hatchpad. And I'm your other host, Mike Ruin. Join us each episode as we bring together two guests to dissect topics at the intersection of technology, startups, and career growth. Uh, what's up, everyone? We are back at it for another episode of the Pair Program. I'm your host, Tim Winkler, accompanied by my co-host, Mike Gruen. Mike, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Good, good. Enjoying, uh, you know, we're getting into that fall, the fall feels, right? So all the... I, I feel like it's the first fall, the, the fake fall. Fake fall. Next, it'll be second summer, and then we'll get into real fall, but yeah. It had like a premature <laughs> pumpkin spice latte already. Um. Cool. Let's let's uh let's dive into this. I'm I'm pretty pumped for today's episode. So um we are calling this one, you know, my unique pathway into product management. And this will be a discussion that we're going to be hearing from two product managers. Uh both have had very different journeys to get into the role of of product management. Uh so we'll hear both of their stories firsthand. We'll start to draw on some of those differences, some of the similarities as we go. Um, I'm sure it's gonna be an episode that's you know chock full of really helpful career growth content for anybody out there that's either pursuing a job in product management, or maybe you're currently in a product role and you're navigating those, the, the different career ladders that are available. Um, I, I do want to thank our two guests for joining us today. Uh, Shavi and Lauren, thank you both for spending time with us on the pair program. Thank you for having us. For sure. Um, all right. So as, as we kick off a traditional fashion here, we're going to, uh, start with the fun segment called Pair Me Up. Um, here's a, a a segment where we're going to go around the room, kind of shout out complimentary pairings. <laughs> Mike, you always kind of kick things off. Why don't you, why don't you tee it off for us? Yeah. Uh, this time I'm going with um, stress and meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things I've learned, uh, so a number of years ago, I started doing meditation and things like that um, to sort of help with, with stress. Um, and what I've learned is that uh, when I start feeling stressed again, it's probably because I've just gotten out of the habit of, of meditating. And, um, uh, you know, I was very skeptical at first, but then uh, a number of different people from very different uh, points of view in my life uh, sort of recommended it. And I gave it a shot and was uh, pleasantly surprised. It's uh, quite effective. For sure. Do you use an app like a guided meditation or do you? Um... I did for a little bit, but not anymore. Um, but the I, I don't mind throwing it out there. The book that really actually got me started was uh, a book by Dan Harris called uh, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, <laughs> um, which I felt like kind of nailed it for me. Um, a fidgety skeptic, so um, it was it was the perfect book for me. That's cool. Yeah, I, I it's yep. it's one of the hardest things I've I've had to kind of stay in that routine. It's easy to fall out of it, and I've kind of picked up to that. You know, I used to have a, a routine where, you know, pre-COVID, right, we were going into an office three days a week and I would use that morning time early in the office to kind of like isolate myself, you know, put on 20 minutes of guided meditation. And and that was part of my routine would be like three days of, of meditating because that was my routine going in the office. When we stopped going in, once the pandemic hit, my entire like uh, routine got thrown. Uh, and so meditation kind of got phased out. And now I'm trying to figure out where does that fit in into my my new routine now that it's, you know, working from home every day uh, of the week. 
So it is, it's, I completely agree though. It's, it's so, it's so necessary um, just to kind of slow, slow the world down and just have a little time to yourself. Mm-hmm. I like it. Um, I'll go with, um, so I'm going to play off of today's topic and I would say um, product management and diversity. Um, so, you know, I've, I've heard this phrase before from leaders in product that, you know, there's no two product managers are the same. Um, there's obviously, you know, a lot of data out there that show that, you know, businesses at large are going to have a, an edge and be more successful if they have a diverse breakdown of employees. Um, but I'm not only referring to like race or gender, but also, you know, diversity in like education, uh, diversity in the size of the company that you've worked for. Uh, so I, I think like this role of product management, which we'll obviously touch on here is kind of synonymous with diverse people from all walks of life and different backgrounds, um, be sales, marketing, finance, engineering backgrounds. Um, so it's actually something that we were mindful of when sourcing for both of our speakers today, ensuring that their, you know, their background backgrounds are also quite diverse and we'll, we'll pick up on that, but that's, that's going to be, uh, my pairing for today is product management and diversity. And let's go ahead and kick it along to our guest, uh, Shavi, maybe a, a quick intro from yourself and then what your pairing is. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for having me here today. Uh, my name is Shavi. I am a product manager at LinkedIn. Um, I oversee our um, expert strategy on LinkedIn learning to help inspire more members on LinkedIn to create more learning content uh, and sharing their expertise. I actually embarked on this new role fairly recently. And before that, I uh, look after search and discovery for our LinkedIn learning experience. Um, I also an active content creator on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me and see my daily sharing on various content. My pairing for today is going to be Peloton and 5 p.m. I think I am a human of habit, a creature of habit. So for me, every time at around 5 p.m. every afternoon during the work weekday, I feel like my productivity just dropped. So I like to just shake things up a little bit. And I realize just even a 20-minute Peloton ride uh, can ingest, you know, different different energy to kind of restart a day. Uh, so as people are getting tired at 5 p.m. for me, uh, the rejuvenating method is actually uh, you know, riding a 20-minute, 20 20-minute 20 ride. That's awesome. Have you been doing that? Did it start at a certain period of time, like uh, like during the pandemic? I know that Peloton obviously had a huge spike in, <laughs> in, in users around that time, but has that been something that you've had a part of your routine for years? Yeah, it's funny because I started right before the pandemic, not knowing that it's pandemic, right? So it's at the end of 2019, I moved to a new location in San Francisco that was actually not very easily accessible to a lot of gym and like fitness studios. I was like looking for ways to work out at home rather yeah. than having to walk, let's say 30 minutes to a fitness studio, feeling already tired and work out. Um, so I'm looking for a, you know, sort of a home uh, workout solution and Peloton mm. can about. And so I just, I, I became really liking it. And I think the trick is actually, if you see my background, I'm trying to hide my Peloton there using a yeah. wide scuff. So it creates more differentiation for my hair. But the point I want to bring that out is because it's very visible uh, in my living space. What that means is that every day at 5 p.m. or right around that time as my productivity dropped, I'll be like naturally just like 
what do I do to make myself like, you know, still feeling like productive in a different way. Yeah. Uh, and it helps me develop that habit. So from maybe working out like before I have Peloton, maybe like once or twice a week, you know, going to the gym and then like a lot of mental barrier, right? Walking there, change clothes and everything. Now I would say during the pandemic, I did it more like for a period of time, I actually had a hundred day break, like a streak where I oh, work nice. out every day for 20 minutes. But nowadays, you know, things are opening up more. So I would say I do it maybe three or four times a week, uh, 20 minutes at a time. So not, not crazy. Cool. That consistency right. though, it sounds like that 5 p.m. kind of is, is your trigger. <laughs> 5 p.m. Like yeah. Yes. Cool. All right. Well, um, uh, uh, 5 p.m. in Peloton was uh, Shaviz. Lauren, what about yourself? Can a quick intro and uh, your pairing. Hi, Lauren Creedon, head of product at Goldcast. Really happy to be here. I'm going to take us back maybe to the fall theme, maybe a little bit to Mike's pairing. I was thinking today, a crackling fire and a good book. Mm. I spent a lot of time over the pandemic at uh, a cabin up in New Hampshire on a pond and like real, like real wood in the fire. You go out and you refill every couple hours, keep it going all day. Just, you know, good weekend day, finish a book. It's just like, I hope if you're a listener and you were dreading the end of summer and now you're thinking toward fall and winter, that like that image gets you ready for the season. I can't agree more about the real fire. I don't know what it is that just makes them feel so much warmer than the the gas fire. Uh, the big fan. What about just like the the crackling Yule log during like the Christmas time, where it's just on on the TV? <laughs> does that does that suffice, or is that going to cut it? Something tells me you've never had a real working. <laughs> like a solo stove. No, I'm just joking. No, I, I I feel you on on the crackling and like. Big, big into camping. Um, I would say that I'm, I'm all about the, the real campfire. The only thing I will say though is that next morning you're gonna, you're gonna reek of, of smoke, and it's just uh, something you deal with. But I, I agree Maybe that in the campfire. But if you have a good working chimney, you can, you can avoid it. That's true. Right, right. If, right, if you wake up smelling like smoke, you should probably have somebody come out and <laughs> yeah, probably, the probably need, need to clean the flu. <laughs> Another son had a tour fireplace, and I, I hadn't either until I'd been spending time at this cabin, and it's a game changer. That's cool. All right, we'll be waiting for our invite to that cabin for uh, for a little decompression here from uh, from the long summer work. Um, well, cool. Let's let's uh, dive in here to um, you know to the, the the main topic. So, as we mentioned, you know we're going to be talking to both of these guests about their journeys. Um, you know, I you know, for the essence of saving some time here, uh, I'm going to pass it right over to the guests now. Um, and Shavi, why don't you give us, you know, your kind of your quick five minute summary of your journey into product management. And then I'll ask the same from you, Lauren, and then we can kind of riff from there. Yeah, sure. Um, five minutes, a lot of time or not a lot of time to flag on a career journey. I would say if I were to summarize in one sentence, I like to start with, I think my journey reflected a lot of what a career pivoter would have gone through, um, like lots of zigzagging to find out what you're passionate about, what you like to do. So I would say, uh, so my career started um, in Hong Kong, where I was uh, studying in finance and economics. And uh, as a lot of people know that Hong Kong is a financial center. So a lot of people going into jobs in finance and 
not surprisingly, I explore that path as well. So I was interning uh, at JP Morgan as an investment banker uh, one summer and very quickly realized that finance is really not my my forte. I, I didn't really enjoy that experience. It was fun, but it feels like, you know, it needs a certain personality type. Um, so then in the last year of my uh, undergrad uh, as a senior, I was looking for ways to grow a more well-rounded skill set. So at the time, consulting came to me and I was like, well, if you don't know what you want to do, <laughs> the best way to do it is through consulting arrangement, working for different companies and different capacity. So for the four, first three or four years of my career, I work as a consultant like in a, both strategy and IT implementation. So I travel around the world to UK, Singapore, Australia, working on a number of digital transformation projects, helping companies implement their CRM, Salesforce, uh, to building retail solutions, apps, building e-commerce store, website. Um, all that great experience made me realize, well, I heard about this magical place called Silicon Valley in the US, and I want to come over and explore more path. So, um, you know, as many folks who do consulting, uh, a, na- a natural path is to pursue like a MBA or master of business administration program. So I found a special program that kind of blends uh, traditional MBA as well as uh, a partner dual degree without engineering school, uh, uh, you know, doing a lot of design thinking, user research. Um, and Northwestern. So I decided to pursue this path uh, back in 2014. Spent two years in Chicago uh, doing various projects around product design um, and started to develop this passion for product management. Uh, that was the first time I heard about it. But um, what went wrong was, you know, just like many career pivoters, um, I am very, I have my strength in building PowerPoint slides. Uh, nowadays, people probably laugh at it, like to see how useful that skill set really is. But back then, you know, if you're a consultant, that's something you you take pride in, it, right? So I didn't have any engineering background, um, as you've seen from my from my story. So I I kind of talked myself down. I had an imposter, like my imposter syndrome, that I thought maybe product management wouldn't be a good fit, right? Like I wouldn't I wouldn't be good at it. I didn't have CS degree. I don't know if I would work well with engineers or not. I just thought, well, I'm very comfortable and very good at making slides. Maybe I should continue to stick to that path. Um, so I did a little bit of coffee chat, talking to like two product managers from my school. They told me about how they designed like one button on like an Adobe Photoshop application. And I was like, ah, not interested in that. Too small a scope feels like I'm going to stick to my slides and painting the vision. And so... Um, I went back to consulting uh, after business school, um, almost immediately regretted it <laughs> uh, because I felt like slides are just, you know, if no one pays attention to what you put down on your slide, it doesn't feel like the sense of achievement and ownership of what you, you know, when, when you, you want to take charge of, right? So um, I try to look for projects where I can exercise more sort of ownership and defining the vision, work, start working a little bit with developers. Um, to build apps and, and, you know, to round out and convict my building that confidence in product management. So I would say about four and a half years ago, I got an opportunity to work at LinkedIn uh, in an internal product um, tooling program management space. So it is a, a role that's in between product and program. 
uh, in a sense of I do work with, I did work with engineers and designers. We build uh, products to serve our internal sales reps. There were 6,000 of them globally. So we build tools to lock their sales, provide insights on how they're selling, uh, and also to management on, um, you know, all the, all the sales prospects. And over the two years, I think I developed a lot of conviction of like, hey, this is really what I want to do. Um, and I, 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 I know how to work with engineers, even without having a formal technical degree. Um, so about two and a half years ago, I started looking both internally, transitioning into our um, product team, um, you know, be able to build external user-facing tools that would impact millions of, of users, as well as also briefly explore outside opportunities outside of LinkedIn. Uh, and then at the end of 2019 or early 2020, uh, I was presented the opportunity to join LinkedIn Learning. Um, and at the time, I had a, a real, I think, chemistry with my, my manager. I, I, at the time, I feel like he was super supportive. I prioritized, you know, manager uh, and people that I work with. And I was also very passionate about education and learning. Uh, I'm first generation in my family to attend a, a you know, college. So I wanted to kind of pay it forward. And with all that goodness coming in, uh, decided to take on that role uh, with LinkedIn Learning. So I've been, uh, you know, doing various product jobs in that capacity. Um, and that's, that's been my journey. Uh, happy to share more and some of the struggles that I went through. I think, yeah, it's been a lot of back and forth, I think, uh, for me to try to build that confidence of like, hey, I can mm -hmm. do this job. This is the right fit. Um, even though, oh, one piece of information I would share was when I did decide to take on the product role, I did, it's more of a lateral move or slightly downward move if you think about it. Because in my mm -hmm. old team, I would have already started to manage a small team of two to four people. We were building my charter. Uh, but when you pivot it into product, a lot of that goes back into the individual contributor, the IC work uh, to kind of build your crafts, uh, proof yourself uh, all over again. So made that career transition and happy to talk more uh, later in the show. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's a lot that we can kind of dissect from that. Um, I want to pivot real quick over to Lauren uh, to get your background because I think it's yeah, it's a very different journey, and then we can start to pick apart some of those specifics around um, the tips and things to avoid and what you wish you would have known. So, Lauren, why don't you um, uh, give us your quick summary as well? Thanks, Tim, and thanks for sharing more about your journey, Shivi. I um. Let's see, I'd, I'd sum up my journey as spending about five years in early stage startups, and then the last seven years in growth stage, series C, D, um, that growth path from 50 to 200 million after you've already proved product market fit mm -hmm. and raised a couple rounds. And, and why those two phases are important when I look back on my own journey is those first five years, I really learned from failures. I learned what happens when you raise a bunch of money and don't test a hypothesis well enough before spending all that money. And I learned what that feels like to to let teams down and let, um, you know, learning learning from those failures defines that those first five years. It was also a phase of my life where uh, a lot of people around me were passionate about ideas. They were passionate about being the one with an idea. They were passionate about just quote unquote startups and building things and. Um, I learned over time, you know, th that that last seven years, I learned from successes. 
failures too, but learned how to work within a really like a growing user base with proven product market fit, how to test and learn, how to fail faster, how to learn early, how to align product development with a true operating plan um, to, to make money back on that money invested. And so where I'm at now, I'm going back to series A, going to be head of product and try to learn or apply both of those experience back at that early stage and develop a good muscle and, and uh, see what works. Um, but you know, I, if I think about my unique path into product management, I didn't start there. Uh, none of those first five years was really working in product management roles. I was a co-founder. I was a head of partnerships. I was eventually starting in that um, my first uh, the, the the first company I the growth stage company I joined was a company called Huddle. Give them a ton of credit for my on-the-job product training. Uh, but I entered in market development, a, a true go-to-market role where I owned their highest growth stage market and owned really what product roadmap and go-to-market strategies would help us grow that market segment and turn around some underperforming products in the process. And I learned from from wearing many hats in my initial roles, um, I learned you know, how all of those different roles function. And then when I was working in that go-to-market role, I really wanted to learn more from these high growth product teams too. And so I sat with the product teams and one of my early PM partners while I was the market development lead taught me a lot about what I knew. And we eventually created uh, an evolved discipline at that company huddle for product management that took the best of both of those skill sets. It was about seven, six, six years ago or so, seven years ago, um, when you saw two types of product managers and the product manager archetype that was more common was closer to a project manager. Um, and we realized what we really wanted the product manager to own was the business outcome and a lot more of those uh, really honing that go-to-market skill set to make prioritization decisions. And um, so we evolved the product role within this company huddle. And um, I realized that I really wanted to get into product management too, because they say, if you're doing, if you, if you're, if you have a hard skill set, if you're doing one of two things to add value to a company, you're either building the product or you're selling the product, and you could distill it down to one of those true things. Um, and and while there's plenty of skills within those and and sub disciplines within those, I realized I I really did my 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 origin story is as a creative. I really wanted to to learn how to create those things, but I didn't want to do it sitting on one side of the fence or the other. I really wanted to help connect both of those those teams and both of those side of the business because where the stress comes out and where the failures come is when that operating plan or those assumptions that go into the growth goals for a market segment are not aligned with the product roadmap or you learn too late or you um, you know you create a lot of stress for teams that way. So through communication, through really understanding and, and getting some great product training, um, I developed a new hard skill set within product management and really give a lot of credit to Huddle for giving me the chance to learn on the job. And so at this point, I'll toss in some advice for, for PMs to really look for if, if you're not, if you're interested in getting into it and you have the opportunity to work for a company that has a, a great discipline and you enter through some other uh, skill set or path to really spend a lot of time learning, um, feed that curiosity, understand the outcomes that matter. and and um, learn at a place where you can get really, really good training. Um, I got to work with Bob Moesta on Jobs to be Done training, Jeff Sutherland on Scrumming training, Marty Kagan, Silicon Valley Product Group Empowered Product Manager training, 
Melissa Perry escaping the build trap, Annie Duke thinking in bets. Like there were a number of different, um, you know, foundational elements that I got to learn with a product culture that really cared about it. But then when I eventually went to go be uh, lead the AI product team at Drift, um, I I was able to lead a team through a really tough time of change um, that needed a lot of go-to-market team alignment and a lot of discipline about predictability through a, a time of a lot of organizational change and roadmapping change. So I can get into some more of those specifics and I have plenty of little tidbits of what that journey was like, but now going into a head of product role, that journey is really, you know, it, it's something I've learned to embrace um, is to really empower the people around me to to do what they're really good at and to own what I'm really good at. And that go-to-market skill set has proven to be a really valuable underpinning of the product management skill set, especially in a leadership role where that alignment across the business really matters to empower the people who are the specialists on your team to really own their areas and execute. So I'll, I'll pause for now. Thanks for giving me the chance to intro. Hey, startup techies. Has this podcast inspired you to explore a new startup career opportunity? Then make sure to check out myhatchpad.com slash jobs to browse startups by stage, tech stack, and salary. Yeah, that was great. I, um, I think what's interesting is that neither one of you have that traditional CS dev engineering background. And as someone who I, I'm engineer, uh, went into VP of engineering, was briefly in product. Um, and then left because it wasn't for me. One of the things I've learned over the course of my career is that actually most of the best product managers I've worked with actually don't have that engineering background. Um, I think they do come from places like marketing and go to market and, and, and the various other parts because to me, and I'm curious if you guys would agree with this, um, product is focused on why and what. And if you have too much of an engineering background, you get sort of focused on the how, which is like, that's what the rest of the engineering team should be working on. And so I think it's actually a huge benefit when you don't have that background. I'm curious um, if that's been both of your um, experiences as well, working with other product managers, your own personal experience. Great question. Uh, you can go first. Lauren, I'll let you get, yeah, I'll let you go first. Lauren. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting one, especially because I found myself working on highly technical parts of the product and not been impeded by not having an engineering background. Um, AIML over at Drift. Um, smart cameras, which is a combination of hardware and software at Huddle, um, live live broadcasting software at Huddle as well, and now at Goldcast. And um, I think what's made me a really great partner to the engineering directors I've worked with is the ability to, to really let them and empower them to do what they're best at. And my own curiosity and, and able to be... Um, you know, conversational in the concepts works for me. But something that's, that's really allowed my teams to thrive, I believe is me owning, okay, my I'm gonna own the go to market alignment, I'm going to really help drill down to what's most important for the business so that when it comes to complexity, you can coach me on where that complexity lies, and help us drill down to what's the trade off that's going to matter. And and been like a really good partner in learning what matters to them, leaning in, being like that team psychologist to understand, okay, how, how can we help um, drive engineering culture forward? But like you said, Mike, not focusing on the how, but focusing on the what and the why and prioritization and team culture and values and um, empowering owners across the team has, has helped me thrive without that background. 
I, I detail what Lauren and Mike said. Um, I think for me, I also was working on pretty, pretty technical product on the platform side as well as AI and NL um, until my recent role. I think something in addition to what both of you said that would be value add for a non-technical PM coming in is that ability to things. One, I think, is our ability to simplify things because majority of the business, even sometimes VP of engineering or director of engineering, when they operate at that level and you, you're running some model or some training of the data, it's really hard for them to, expl- like, to really quickly grasp what is the gist? What is the value that the that piece of experiment or technology brings to the table? So being able to communicate from a value-centric um, you know, approach versus just highlighting, oh, we're doing this experiment, running this model, and you know, it, it helps to bring, bring visibility into the work. Um, uh, and that engineering sometimes, you know, are not very comfortable being their own self-advocate. So I think as a PM communicating a value-centric turn and bring that visibility, I think really, really help being that glue between a development team and rest of the business, the go-to-market teams. I think the second value that PM kind of bring in, in addition to the vision, um, I think it's it's sort of the, the storytelling aspect and also how to be able to ask smart questions from, from data, looking at experiment. I think a lot of times like coming into an AI discussion, I remember, I would just ask very basic user insight question that, you know, the data is available, but the engineer have not thought about interpreted data that in that particular way. Um, and I think those have been really, really helpful. Like, you know, if we're looking at our search data, sometimes most basic thing I would ask is just like, what are some, what are some of the common terms that people search? Are they successful? Are they fail? Why? And just understand that. I think gives you a lot of insight. And it's almost like I'm working with my engineering team firsthand, training them to gain user insight. And sometimes they really, really appreciate that. Go ahead, Lauren. I think you're about to say something. Yeah, I was gonna build off of that, Shivi. I was gonna I was thinking to myself how I've found some of the best product innovation ideas even come from engineering. And sometimes the engineers, oftentimes the engineers on my team are really, really close to that user data. And it made me think about what things engineers traditionally don't like to do. And they often overlap with the things I do like to do. And that's, that's been like, that's really worked. I've gotten to start off a lot of those relationships with like, hey, you don't like stakeholder management. You don't like having to go through the justification and get everyone on board and do the pitch and like find that, you know. I like doing that. And so like that ends up often starting off a really great partnership of aligning on what are your strengths? What don't you like to do? What do you want to rely on me for? And um, that, that ability to bring all the data together, influence all the stakeholders, help reduce the thrash of, of road mapping requirements. Um, You know, it can be helpful to lean in with your engineering partners and, you know, every engineering product partner is going to have a different skill set combo and engineering and design NPM kind of uh, triangle too. And so to, to lead off those relationships with really understanding what your strengths are and how you're going to lean on each other has always served me well. Yep. I appreciate that you nailed all of the reasons why I left product. Now. <laughs> <laughs> all of that trying to get alignment and the rest of it was, uh, was definitely a challenge <laughs> for me. Uh, well, we would have been a good pair, Mike. <laughs> there you go. 
I like maybe some, the next opportunity. <laughs> I like some of these terms that are getting thrown out too, like team psychologist. Like that's a that's a good one. Um, but you know, I think Shavi, you brought up something interesting that I feel like uh, you know maybe we can expand on because you you reference like imposter syndrome um, and not really feeling like I don't know like and I don't want to take the, I want to take this a little bit from the angle of breaking into product management because I think this is a, a unique just topic in itself, because it's not truly something that you're going to just, you know, study a core like product management throughout your undergrad and know exactly like, oh, I'm going to get into product management straight out of school. Oftentimes that's rare. Um, You know, there's sometimes associate PM positions and uh, things of that nature, but oftentimes, you know, you'll go on Reddit and there's hundreds of subreddits talking about, you know, what are my, you know, I I come from an MBA background or I'm I'm a consultant or, you know, what are my best chances of getting into a product position? Um, and I think that leads down this imposter syndrome that you're referencing of, I don't know if I was, you know, meant to be in this seat or not, um, because I still have so much I need to learn. And, you know, Lauren, you, you, you hit it on the head with, you know, your experience at Huddle, like finding a company that gives you that opportunity to kind of spread your wings. Um, but, but what would you say gives folks like their best advantage to, getting into a, a product seat, you know, if they're looking at their background and, you know, what they might want to consider when trying to present that to, you know, a, a hiring manager when they're, you know, trying to uh, obtain that role. Um, that's a little bit vague, but yeah, I'd love to just kind of like get into that weeds of some of that. I want to take the first stab at this one because I have a funny anecdote from my past. I used to, I spent 10 years working in sports tech. And it was the same thing. Everyone wanted a job in sports. Not everyone, but it was like, I'd go to a career panel and people would be like, how do you get a job in sports? I love sports. I'm so passionate about sports. In interviews for my companies, I'd be interviewing people. Well, I'm really qualified because I love sports. And it used to occur to me, and I like to use this analogy for product management because it was like, that's, that's not a qualification. Like really wanting to, like I think the, the parallel for product management is like, I have really good ideas. Or like, I'm, I love, like, I, I feel like really close to the customer. And I think I have the ideas that it would take to build a product roadmap to solve those problems. And the reason I like the sports analogy is because I used to bring it back to, okay, sports, it's a field. Like what you have to know the value and the outcomes you're going to contribute to. Like what, what is the outcome that you're going to drive that you're going to add value to within that sports organization? And I used to give that as advice to people when I get into sports. It's like, okay, what is the business outcome you're going to drive? How are you uniquely positioned to solve it? That's more of like an interview advice. But within product, if you're trying to break in, think about what outcomes you've already driven. Do you have a track record of understanding the, the system beyond your role? of how it all comes together, about driving outcomes within that system, of driving alignment, about identifying a problem, testing and learning whether it's wrong, evaluating alternatives, seeing where your assumptions are, getting it to all the way through to user value. And you know, you can do that within a customer success role. You can do that within a business development role. You can do that in a marketing role. You can go and volunteer for things outside the scope of your role and be really outcome focused. And in a product management interview, or even within your company, you're going to get that track record of being like, I produce outcomes because that's what matters as a product manager. And so if you understand what outcomes you're going to drive for both the customer and the business and can speak to them and you're always having that mentality, 
that's going to be more valuable for getting into product management than any idea you could cite as why your ideas are going to be better than someone else's. So I'm curious to hear what you think, Shivi. Yeah, Lauren, I, lo I love what you said. Um, I like to address this question in two parts because I really think there are two questions, Tim. One is how do you overcome imposter syndrome? And then that imposter syndrome manifested even more so when you try to get into a popular role by product management, which is the mm -hmm. second part of the question. Um, I think the first part about imposter syndrome, it's, it's so funny because um, I read a book that I recommend folks to check out. It's called Positive Intelligent. There's 10 different sabotagers for yourself uh, that manifested in different ways to try to like judge you or stop you from you know doing more, playing bigger, and living a more purposeful or productive or fruitful life, right? And those are the 10 different type of voice that could tell you like, you're not qualified for this role, or you're not good enough, or this and that. It's judging you for what you did. Um, and actually, there's a lot of science about it. I'm not going to go into the detail, but the gist is that since hunter-gatherer days, like our mindset, our brain is wired to protect us. So anytime we try anything that's remotely hard or unfamiliar, you're going to hear that voice. It just sings different tones and narrative, right? And we don't know that it's imposter syndrome in the beginning. Like I didn't know, but you're just going to hear a voice and say, oh, maybe I wouldn't be good for it. Maybe I, you know, maybe someone else is better uh, just because you're trying something new. Um, and, and you need to get familiar, insanely familiar with that voice. Because anytime you're going to do something hard, anything that's eventually meaningful, that you're growing, you're going to hear that voice. And so I think the, the trick to overcome imposter syndrome is not to be afraid of it, not to think of it like something you can overcome once, and then that would be it. I think it's something you had to like constantly deal with. Um, unless you, are, you stop trying, you live in a very comfortable, easy life that you might regret like a couple years down the road and then start over again and then feeling that. So I think you need to learn how to embrace it and get familiar with like what song, what negative chatter is singing to you so that you knew, okay, you can catch it and then you can then reframe it and, 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 you know, and then be able to cope with it better. And now to your second question about breaking into PM, I think Laura mentioned such an important point. I feel like a lot of folks wanted to break into product, but they are approaching it from their own angle. Like, oh, I'm a customer support manager. How do I, how do I break in? Or I was a consultant. How do I break in? I think you need to embrace that new identity. Again, imposter syndrome will show up, but how can you explain your current job from the lens of a product manager, right? Like how, how are you able to drive value? What impact did you deliver? What problem did you solve? How did you decide what problem to solve? Um, did you talk to the user? How do you get their insight? How do you prioritize what they say and translate it into a product roadmap? I think a lot of it is embracing this new identity of like, I'm already acting as a product manager in my current role, in my current capacity. And how do I tell a better story to reflect that? I think that's one. I also think that the other one is a lot of times people think of they're going to get their dream product job in one go. Um, I think in current, you know, market dynamics, sometimes it's hard. So I, I encourage people to embrace a multiple step phase approach and also be open-minded to different types of company. Um, I know that for bigger companies like the Fang company, LinkedIn included, sometimes they're very strict about a certain, 
you know, you have to be a product manager before you're going to apply for a product role that mm-hmm. catch 22. I encourage people to open up to startups or other big, other company that are more welcoming um, to career pivoters who can bring a different skill set to the table. Uh, so don't pigeonholing yourself just into maybe one type of company or one stage of company. And you can always, you know, try something else first, get that product title, and then apply for maybe more mature company, company that have like higher threshold for former years of product experience. And then you, you're going to shape your path, you know, once you, you're in the field and learning on the job. Um, so stay open-minded. I think it's my mm-hmm. other, other tip. Awesome. I have a quick, quick counterpoint to your first point, Shavi, that kind of gets at what you were making, the, the point you were making at your second point. Um, you were talking about imposter syndrome, and then you were talking about like getting the experience and charting your own path. And when you were talking about com- imposter syndrome, I was thinking to myself, so many people who want to be PMs, I think are like the most confident people I've run into in my career, like sometimes overly confident. And when I brought up that idea about your ideas, uh, being great ideas, being why you want to get into PM, um, I think sometimes like to all of those people who are trying to get into PM, I also encourage you to be realistic about the humility you will build in your first couple years of product management. You will fail. You will learn your ideas and your three-year vision for the product is not going to come to life. I like, this was my journey. My first couple years into it really, like I, I genuinely mean like you will, you will need to account for two to three years minimum of building a humility muscle of like really trying to learn what you don't know um, in your day to day, in your, over, over your year of your career and like, and, and try to structure those years to learn as much as possible to know going in, it's going to take time. It's going to take reps. And, um, that is the most valuable use of your time. If you really want to have a longer career in product management. I think it's interesting, the imposter syndrome and then the overconfidence, because my, my experience is to see both in the same person. Like, first of all, I can speak to myself. I have imposter syndrome. I remember early in my career, my mentor telling me, just lean into it. Like, just ask yourself, like, what is it like? And how are you going to overcome it and listen to that voice and use that voice to, as a way of like your guide to how to overcome this stuff. But I can also say that I've worked with money, especially in product who come in. Um, I think they're scared that they're going to be found out that they don't know what they're doing. And so they, the way that comes across is this overconfidence, this, they don't want to ask questions. They don't want to appear to not know what they're talking about. And I think, that one of the hallmarks of a, of a product person is asking good questions and saying, I don't know. And, and maybe there's some other way and, and other things along those lines. I think that's, I, I think both of you are basically getting at the same thing, which is like, but just from different angles. And I think there's lots of, lots of great content there. Yeah. We could probably spend a whole so episode true. on. So true. I like to call it working in public as the solution to like, not feeling like you have to show up with all the answers. And just being open to being wrong and learning and asking those questions and saying, this is where we're at. And, and meeting with as many people as you can to, to learn about it, whether that's an initiative or in, in the shape of your own career. So. Yeah. And I think like, um, you know, there's the, so there's the, the breaking into product um, piece that we're talking about. And then I think, you know, when we talk about product management and, and it being such a vast space, um, Shavi, I was looking on uh, your LinkedIn feed and of course you're putting out great content from being <laughs> part of LinkedIn. Uh, and there was a, a specific post that I was just kind of like reading through that I thought was really helpful. 
and it was something I think off of like a reforged template as well, but it was about you know, how to create a PM career roadmap. Um, and I think this is a, just a general exercise that I find is probably you know, transferable, not just on you know, the PM path, but also when you're going through a job search and you're trying to understand like, you know, who, who do I want to work with? Like from a company size perspective, you know, what is it that I'm passionate about from vertical um, and some of the things that you're, that you reference, I want to point out, and we can also share it in the, in the notes is, um, you know, what type of product work that you enjoy doing? Like, do you think that like that zero to one path is great? Or do you think like this finding product market fit could be great? You know, what stage of the company, right? The early stage, you know, well-funded stage, is it, you know, mature pre-IPO or is it public? Uh, what domain will you excel in? You know, do you like, you have B2B, you know, apps, you like B2C, B2B2C, you know, that's also where you could bake in like industry and vertical, like FinTech or health tech. Um, you, you reference some uh, PM archetypes. So like user facing versus more of a technical PM, uh, the level that you want to grow into, IC, manager, maybe founders on your, on your vision board. Um, and then you break down like core competencies. So like, like requirement definition, product delivery, user design, research, product roadmap, storytelling, what are the things that you think that you're really good at? Um, and I, I thought it was a really helpful kind of framework. Um, we'll obviously repost it, but I uh, just wanted to kind of commend you that that was, and I think that was something that, you know, Reforge, um, which is a, a products management school, I believe, um, had kind of pushed out as something that folks can tap into when they're trying to understand like what path is really that path. And that would probably be like after you've kind of broken in a little bit to product, but. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's one of the most popular posts I, I created. So definitely uh, share in the show notes and folks should check out. I think a couple of things. First, um, just to wrap up the imposter syndrome, breaking into PM, I think my summary from the two spectrum of overconfidence and lack of confidence is that you overcome imposter syndrome by showing that you don't know everything and you're okay with it and asking questions, learning in the open. Uh, and bringing people along the journey, the learning journey with you. I think that's how you would overcome it. So the, the, the two actually tie in perfectly together. Uh, second, Tim, to your point, yes, it's a really helpful framework. And I also recommend Reforge having a lot of different resources. There are blocks, even if you don't pay you know, the annual membership fee, their blocks have some articles that were written by a lot of operators uh, that had years of product experience in various domain that go in pretty in depth. So I think if you want to just even doing research about understanding what you do as product marketers versus product management, I think it will give you a lot of case studies and frameworks to embrace. Specifically on this career death framework, I encourage everyone to check out and do that reflection. But just like what I was saying and what Lauren was saying, be realistic, meaning that you might have a current version of your roadmap. You might have an idealistic version, like I want to do consumer facing products like Instagram reel, whatnot, like sexy customer consumer product. But if you all of your experience so far is B2B, for example, then you it might be a really hard pivot for you to go straight from B2B all the way to, to consumer, you know, front end, you know, development. So you might need to pivot it into potentially a user facing B2B product, like, you know, Slack, and a lot of other, other B2B applications right nowadays emphasize a lot on beautiful UX and UI. So you might go for that version first, 
Or you might go to a B2C company that values aspects of B2B, such as monetization, like, you know, other aspects, like ads. So make sure you use that as a way to plan your roadmap. Like it might take multiple steps before you get to where you eventually want to go. I do think it's a great framework for sort of periodic reflection, right? Maybe at the end of every year or every six months, you try to like check in with yourself, see where you are at. Maybe things change. Maybe your preferences change. Uh, I think it's a good framework to kind of embrace and, and like help you reflect on your progress. Good stuff. Yeah, I, I was going to say like we can keep going on this unless she, unless she has want to jump. We can do the wheel. I don't know. Um, uh, if there was a, you know, we could probably do a follow-up episode to be, to be honest, we've got a lot left to meet on the bone, but, um, anything, I guess, Lauren, that you wanted to kind of, uh, cap off with, and then we can just jump to the wheel, um, and give it a spin. Yeah, sure. Um, on the subject of designing your career path, I, I love Shivi's example of designing it like a product roadmap. I haven't read the post, but it resonated with me to to think very realistically about what skills you will need and finding ways to go get them. And if you're at a company where you can translate the skills you would get as a product manager to be helpful to whatever area of the product or business you work on now, um, try it. Something like I mentioned, the jobs to be done training. Um, can can be very valuable to different areas of the business if you truly understand the user job to be done. So if you're in a customer success role and want to be more product adjacent, you could try to proactively get that training, uh, either sponsored by your, your work or outside of it. And you could then volunteer for those types of initiatives. I, I can't stress enough the amount of volunteering or kind of side of desk thinking that would go into this if you really do want to make the transition but getting really close to those teams, understanding how they work, starting to understand the basic principles of Scrum and Agile because predictability and delivering things on time for a roadmap really starts to be like the inner mechanics of how to prioritize, how to commit, how to scope things to the minimum viable product. Those types of principles, doing as much learning as you can to really architect that beginning phase of your journey. Um, you can, you can, it's like, you know, the advice you might give someone who wants to write a book, like you said, or like a make a totally separate career pivot, you're gonna have like, if you want to be making making money at the same time, you might have to start while you currently have a day job, and then eventually test and learn. And you might be able to interview within your company, or you might not have any interviews within your company. And you might want to try interviewing, and get failed interviews and see why you got rejected and look, look for feedback. I have um, a really great experience interviewing for a position at Netflix in which I made it to the final round, but learned that ah, I just didn't have enough of one thing that they were looking for. But I had a follow-up call with the hiring manager and she got to explain to me exactly like what she would have liked to see instead. And then I worked for the, worked on that for the next six months at my job and it, it was no longer a problem and we've stayed in touch and she's a great mentor. And so if you can look for any opportunities to get feedback, then you're going to be pouring your, your effort into of the right growth area for for that roadmap so like a true product roadmap build in those opportunities for feedback to learn where you're wrong and then pour that additional six months of effort into the right place and you'll get there awesome well said well said i i am gonna i'm gonna stick to the to the wheel just because uh mike if you gotta jump a little early no worries we can um we can still kind of uh work things out um 
But uh, yeah, we'll we'll transition um, to to this segment. It's called Round Out My Career. So it's a a, set, a session where we have this community wheel behind me. Uh, it has topics and questions that are kind of crowdsourced from uh, the Hatchpad community, and uh, they can range from anything from you know navigating compensation discussions to diversity and so forth. So let's give it a spin and see what today's topic is. Let's round it out. All right, leadership. So, <laughs> all right, so let's um, have a quick peek here. So, you know, this is a little bit generic, but, um, you know, I think it's appropriate. We, we've got obviously a great uh, couple, of, couple of folks here that have uh, one who which works for LinkedIn Learning. So this might be a tee up uh, for you, but um, I'm generally curious on, you know, from a leadership courses, trainings, um, development that you've taken. Um, doesn't have, it doesn't have to be coursework per se. It could be specific books uh, around leadership, uh, but uh, anything that comes to mind that you feel has been kind of instrumental in your specific development uh, as it applies to being a leader. Um, should be one we start with you. All right, so many. Try hard, try hard to condense into a few. So I think the first one, um, what, get, what got you here won't get you there is a, a pretty good, good book that summarizes, especially for anyone who's looking to transition, I think, from like an individual contributor to someone who's leading, influencing with our authority or start managing people. I think that's a really good book. Um, I, I also really like what we already discussed today of like asking questions, showing your empathy. I think being able to ask thoughtful questions is one way to show empathy and compassion. And that's kind of been my, my leadership prin uh, principle. Um, I did created a course on uh, managing personal productivity as a way to uh, part of it is also being a more compassionate leader. Uh, so my LinkedIn profile, there's a link that goes directly that you can consume the course for free, um, you know, for, from, from that link. Um, last but not least, I would just say that the best leader that I usually admire are someone who are a servant leader, right? That always think about how to elevate the team versus being really near short-sighted and like not very inspirational. Yes, they get results done, but they also care about their people. Um, so I always look for uh, role models like that in my in my life. That's great. Um, yeah, we'll have a ton of uh, references here to drop in the show notes. Um, Lauren, how about yourself? So for the purposes of this leadership question, let's assume you're already trained in the basics of product management. I, I mentioned five books earlier in the podcast. Or, or training mechanisms. So let's assume you already know the basics of product management. There's one thing, there's one thing that's made the biggest difference for me over the last year and a half when it comes to leadership. And that is uh, the Negotiation Masterclass by Chris Voss. It's available on Masterclass. And I wanted to skip ahead when I opened it up. I was like, oh, well, I already know that part about building trust and I kind of want to just get to that part that's maybe about like the very specific type of negotiation I want to do. And I came in with this assumption about why I needed negotiation and what it was. But the course was designed to not let you 
skip ahead. I had to go through those initial parts. And it helped me realize how much I didn't know already, someone already in a leadership role about leadership and communication. And I would so encourage anyone to to spend the time looking at it and re- reviewing as someone who's already built their muscle about building trust and uh, you know leadership through communication. Revisit it with this guy, Chris Baugh. Uh, he's a trained uh, hostage negotiator, mm. and he is well known for training salespeople on how to negotiate. We come in with this idea of what negotiation is, and some people brand it as this, you know, ability to get what you want out of a situation. And he kind of he totally rebrands it, and he's like, true negotiation is about getting to an outcome that both people want and making the process really enjoyable and building trust along the way. And the tactics I learned in even those first couple modals of that course changed the way I have day-to-day conversations with my coworkers, changed the enjoyment I get out of them, changed the actual ability to learn from those people, things that I was making assumptions going into those conversations. And they're really small tactics. They do boil down to listening more, but there's very specific ways you can get people to reveal more in a way that they're trusting you while revealing more. Um, but I just, I mean, to use, to use a simple one, uh, I, I go into to conversations and think that I was building trust by restating to people, like, you know, showing them that I kind of knew maybe where they were coming from. And he helps you realize how, even if you were to know exactly where they're coming from, that doesn't build trust. That doesn't build empathy. Having them, giving them the opportunity to state it in their own words and know you've heard them is like, the master differentiator. So I think it, it really empowered me to do even more listening than I was already doing, use a couple key tactics to really give other people the floor. And I've seen really, really great results from it. So I highly recommend the Art of Negotiation Masterclass by Chris Voss in whatever format you choose to listen to it. That's great. And yeah, that's what I, we have to do as PMs. We 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 have to we have to negotiate with stakeholders and with roadmap items and customers. And the more you can listen, the more you can learn. The the better for your career. I'm big really big masterclass fan. I really enjoy that the book um, from by Chris Wass too. So I think the class might be even more engaging and easier for one to consume. So veto that recommendation. That's great. Mike, did you have anything you wanted to throw in there? I mean, that's a tough, that's a tough act to follow. <laughs> Just I was thinking, it. so, so, um, the manager's path is a good book, um, recommended throughout my career by multiple people. I've recommended it. It's, it's, it's worth it. Um, and then mentors, I, I, I think that, um, especially now it's probably even more of a challenge with the pandemic and a lot of working from home, but, um, so much of what I learned was from, identifying managers, not even my manager, it was frequently a manager of a different team that like I really enjoyed or appreciated their, their, their method or something about them um, and emulating them. And then, um, and having a couple of mentors um, over the course of my career um, who really had a good impact um, on being able to give me those lessons and like, Hey, you think you know this, but <laughs> like they can really hold you accountable and call your, you know, call you out on your bullshit of like, no, you don't actually know what you're doing and you should probably uh, focus more in this area and stuff like that. So that would be mine. Making of a manager is another good one. And uh, a surprising one that I haven't heard other people read is the dream manager. It's all about this philosophy of like, if you really understand someone's personal and career dreams beyond the current job. Um, you can really, 
kind of align what they're doing day to day towards that. And so, yeah, for, for people who are looking to get into management too, as well as product management, mm-hmm. um, it's, you know, super, super valuable skill to aligning teams toward outcomes. Yeah, I'll just kind of, you know, quickly throw in a couple more more items. You know, I, I did a lot of like digging into, you know, online leadership courses. I, you know, I've been running a, a, a small business for 10 years and, you know, never, you know, never thought about like, you know, going back and getting an MBA or, um, you know, figuring out how that would help me, you know, be a better polished, you know, entrepreneur. Um, and I think there was a certain point where I was like, you know, I, I would actually benefit from having some sort of, you know, academic training. Uh, so I went and uh, did a, a leadership course through MIT's um, management Sloan School, basically on how to be a, how to be a leader. And, and like they said, it's a, an exponentially changing world um, and just kind of like bringing it into, for me anyways, it was right after we went fully remote. Um, and trying to understand how to, to really kind of keep my team motivated, um, you know, keep culture, morale high. Uh, those were things that, you know, it was helpful to, to kind of get a little bit of a validation from, you know, a, a certified school. But at the same token, I'd say probably the, the best has been, kind of you touched on it, Mike, which is finding like really like mentors that are kind of in your lane uh, that have maybe done really what you've done in specific growth spurts uh, and getting their two cents. Um, that's been, that's been probably the most helpful as far as, you know, relevant to, uh, growing a small business. Um, and then I just, I would say like there's forums, the communities, um, that are really in your sweet spot. And one that we always like to promote is Rand's leadership Slack community. Um, they have a ton of great, you know, just engineering product focused leadership, real specific, you know, um, uh, going from like, uh, you know, IC to manager or how to be a staff engineer that's, that's graduating my career. There's a lot of different, very specific, uh, like sub channels in the Slack. So, um, I like to give that one a, a shout out. Um, and then obviously like, yeah, LinkedIn, I mean, you know, we do a ton of research and, uh, there's a ton of great courses on LinkedIn that we love to partake in and, and offer up to some of our, our management team that's, that's trying to broaden their skill set. So. Um, other than that, I think we are um, going to wrap here. So if there's anything specifically that you all wanted to shout out in terms of where folks can find you, uh, you can do so now um, and then we'll wrap it up. It could be social media. It could be, you know, I don't know if there's anything Lauren, specific. I know you need a job. Why don't you start? Sure. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Lauren Creeden on LinkedIn. Um, would love to uh, find a few more folks to mentor over the course of the next year. So always looking to connect with familiar faces and, and new unfamiliar ones. Nice. All right. Likewise, you can also find me on LinkedIn, follow me. Um, also, every almost every Friday, I host another show called the PM Learning Series, where I get to interview some PM thought leaders uh, and industry builders on their journey, particularly in product management. So if you are want to continue your learning uh, after today's show, uh, you can join me on Fridays. Awesome. All right. Thank you all for joining us. This was a lot of fun.
Are you a startup founder or tech leader looking to grow your engineering or product teams? If so, Hatch IT could be a partner worth exploring. We've helped hundreds of startups scale their tech teams with relational and marketing-driven recruiting solutions. Check out hatchit.io slash hire to learn more about how we can help your teams grow.